Well, I love how that song puts to music uh, so many of the themes that we're learning about in the book of Esther, a time where uh, God's people uh, really needed to trust him. And uh, I hope that song provides you comfort for the here and now, but also gives you hope for the future, whatever your future may hold. You don't know, I don't know, only God does, but uh, he's there already, amen? That's what it means, he's the ancient of days, he always been, he always will be, and so we know that God will be there in the future no matter what our future holds. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 7, and we're going to continue our study this morning, and I'd like to read this chapter as we begin. Esther chapter 7, and you can just follow along in your own Bibles as I read, and uh, if you are uh, visiting today, uh, we've been studying the book of Esther for the last, uh, really since the summer started, and um, just taking a chapter a week, and so we're almost done. It's hard to believe, just a couple more messages uh, after today, but uh, let's read chapter 7 together. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance of the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he, and where is he, who would presume to do thus? Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, "'Will he even assault the queen with me in the house?' As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Father, we thank you again, as we do every week, for preserving uh, your word for us, that we know that we have a trustworthy copy of the scriptures. And this is, this is our standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. And we just come humbly before you today in your word and ask that your spirit, the same spirit that inspired this text uh, thousands of years ago, would illuminate our minds and help us understand what is going on in this chapter and how it applies and relates to our lives today. And we ask that for your glory and ultimately so that we could become more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you were with us at the outset of this study, you may remember that I began by telling you a story about a lone shipwreck survivor who had been washed up on a small uninhabited island and just when he thought all hope had been lost... He was rescued by the supposed smoke signal, which actually came from his driftwood hut burning to the ground. How ironic. The story of Esther is filled with ironies, much like this. For example, last week we learned about uh, Ahasuerus and how he wanted to honor Mordecai, and so he asked Haman, who had come early to the palace that morning to seek the king's permission to hang Mordecai, what he would suggest be done for the man who the king wanted to honor. And being the arrogant 
man that he was. He presumed the king was referring to him. And so Haman proposed an elaborate parade which he, in which he would get to be king for a day, get to ride the king's horse, wear the king's uh, robe, wear the king's crown. And so Ahasuerus thought it was a great idea. And so he ordered Haman to do everything he had proposed to Mordecai, the Jew. How ironic. Haman had spent the previous night building a spike on which to skewer Mordecai. And the very next day, he was forced to esteem the very man he wanted to execute. And now here in chapter 7, we, we see the most profound irony of it all, the irony of ironies, if you will, in the story of Esther, and that is Haman is impaled to death on the very same stake that he had constructed to impale Mordecai. How ironic. We use that word ironic or irony to describe a, a state of affairs or an event that happens in the opposite way as what is expected and is typically amusing as a result. And we got a chuckle last week, didn't we, when, when Haman thought he was going to get to ride around on the king's horse and we laughed when Hazard says, hey, I want you to do that for Mordecai. It wasn't what, what he expected. And so based on that definition of irony, a state of affairs or an event that happens in the opposite way as what is expected, for those of us who know God and seek to discern world affairs, uh, events in our own lives, affairs in our own lives through the lens of his word, we know that irony is not just some random and personal force. It's ultimately God's sovereignty in action. It's what we know as God's providence. John Piper in his magnum opus, as they're calling it, a book just simply called Providence, uh, This is how he defines it. He said, the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. So providence, according to Piper, is God's purposeful sovereignty. He goes on, God's providence carries his sovereign plans into action and it guides all things towards his ultimate goal. It's a good definition of providence, simply sovereignty, God's sovereignty being played out or put in, into action. One of the great providences in Scripture or ironies, if you want to use the world's term, um, that we see in the Bible is how those who plot evil against others end up falling into the same trap they set for themselves. You can look with me at a few references to this, uh, both in the Psalms and the Proverbs. And again, we uh, have been going back to the wisdom books uh, during our study of Esther because there's so uh, so many ways that the book of Esther exemplifies wisdom and foolishness, wisdom and folly. Psalm 7, verse 15 He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. Psalm 9, verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. And then Psalm 35, Psalm 35, verse 7. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares and let the net which he hid catch himself into that very destruction Let him fall. And then Psalm 57, Psalm 57, verse 6, they have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. And then look over in the book of Proverbs, 
towards the end, Proverbs chapter 26, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 27, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. Well, we see all of these verses played out in the life of Haman. Back back in Esther, Esther chapter 9, verse 25, summarizes this principle. Esther chapter 9, verse 25, but when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, Haman, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. And so here we have illustrated the the biblical principle of divine justice, the law of retribution. What goes around, what? Comes around. Or the New Testament principle, you reap what you sow. Or what I've chosen to call uh, this message, the boomerang effect. The boomerang effect. We've all probably had the opportunity to throw a boomerang once in our life. Pretty interesting physics going on there, right? When you throw this boomerang out there, you throw it away from you, and it spins around and comes back to you. I looked up a definition of boomerang effect, and this is how the term is used. It's used to describe a situation in which something has the opposite effect from the one you intended or expected. Sounds very similar to the definition of irony, right? A situation in which something has the opposite effect from the one you intended or expected. And if you were to apply this term, boomerang effect, to something like, say, biology, as an example here, the boomerang effect describes the effects of a deliberate change to an ecosystem when they escape the control of those who introduce them. All we need to do is remember the classic line from Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park when he said, all your well-laid plans come back to bite you, literally, in the form of a dinosaur, a genetically uh, created dinosaur. Well, up until this point in the story, Haman had been in control. He had carefully orchestrated all the events that it had transpired up to this point, but now he was no longer in control. He had lost control. And what he realized, that he was never really in control to begin with. Why? Because God was the one who was always in control. And so so now the tables are turned. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. While they were still talking with him, this was... Haman talking to his wife and his friends, and they uh, were responding to all that had happened that day when he had to, you know, honor Mordecai, the one he wanted to hang, and they said, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. I would imagine at that moment, That was the last thing that Haman wanted to do, is to go out to a party, to go to a banquet. There he was, licking his wounds and uh, starting to get the very real sense that he was going down. Not in the mood for a party. But he was swept up in God's providential plans, and it was only a matter of time before his sin would find him out. And he would get what he had coming to him, and the Jews would be delivered from his evil plot. And that's what we see here in chapter 7. And I've just divided this chapter into three sections. Esther's request, verses 1 through 4. Ahasuerus's rage, verses 5 through 8. And then Haman's reward, verses 9 and 10. So let's look at these three uh, sections one at a time. First of all, Esther's request. Look at verse 1. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. 
So if you remember, she had invited him to a previous banquet the day before, uh, and the king had asked Esther what, uh, really twice now, uh, what she wanted, why she had come to him uninvited. Uh, This is the third time now uh, the king was asking her to tell him what she wanted. And again, he promises her to, to, to give her anything she asked for up to half the kingdom. Well, as you know, up until this point, Esther had kept her nationality a secret. Uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 10. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And again in verse 20, Esther had not yet made known their kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. But now she was about to come out, if you will, come out of the closet and reveal to her husband that she was a Jew. And she wasn't sure how Azuerus was going to respond when she dropped this bomb on him, considering the fact that he was a dangerously unstable individual. And we're learning that about him, aren't we? If you haven't picked that up yet in the story of Esther, sometimes it's helpful to look at world history. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus recorded that Ahasuerus, is, uh, or, 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 or that Ahasuerus one time was asked by a man named Pythias that he might release the eldest of his five sons from obligation to military service. He had five sons in the military. It's kind of like the band of brothers kind of philosophy, right? If you got all your sons in the military, get them out of there, right? No parent should have to lose all of their uh, kids on the battlefield, all their sons on the battlefield. And so even though this man Pythias had showed great hospitality to Ahasuerus Ahasuerus, and contributed generously toward the cost of his war with Greece, Ahasuerus was so incensed by this father's request that he had the man's son cut in half, and made the army pass between the two pieces. This is this this Ahasuerus. This is Esther's husband. Not a nice fellow. Um, And yet, at God's direction and Mordecai's counsel and now the king's bidding, Esther finally made her impassioned appeal. And revealed to her husband who she really was. Verse 3, then Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves... Men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Notice again how submissive she is, how respectful she is in the way that she appealed to her husband. She's not accusatory. She's not like, you did this. She begged him to spare her life and the lives of her people who had been sentenced to death. And she repeated the death decree verbatim From chapter 3, verse 13, if you remember, letters were sent by courier to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the children day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Again, notice how Esther demonstrated tact in her words by letting the king know that she wouldn't have troubled him if she and her people had just been sold into slavery, that wouldn't have been that big of a deal. I wouldn't have come to you about that. I wouldn't have troubled you about that. I'm not going to bother you about petty requests. But the fact that Haman had bribed him with a large sum of money to decree the Holocaust of the Jews made it an urgent matter that he needed to be made aware of. This was like finding out the Mordecai said, hey, Esther, some guys are going to try to assassinate Ahasuerus. Tell him. Let him know about that. Now she was wanting to let her husband know that he had been, been deceived. 
He'd been bribed. He'd been suckered into this this holocaust of the Jews, and so uh, she wanted to make him aware of that. And so that was Esther's request. Now let's look at Ahasuerus' rage. Ahasuerus' rage in verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? So the king wanted to know who was responsible for this secret conspiracy against his wife and the Jews. And by the way, I don't think at this point Ahasuerus connected this plot to Haman because Haman hadn't bothered to tell the king who the people were that he wanted to destroy. Again, look back at chapter 3, verse 8. This is when, how Haman approached this initially. This is Esther chapter 3, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people. Didn't say these Jews. He said there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, of all the other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. And the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews." The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. So the Jews, the term Jews, the name Jews, apparently was never even used. It was just this people group. And so back in Esther chapter 7, when the king said, who is the guy, where is he? Who would presume to do this? You got to believe that Haman was sweating bullets. I mean, he's right there. He's like sitting right next to the king. And he could tell the king was getting hacked off big time. And this was the guy you didn't want to be around when he was hacked off. Because you were going to get hacked off in some way. Like literally, physically, anatomically. There goes your head, right? Verse 6, Esther said, a foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. Now, you can just imagine that scene, how shocked the king was to find out that his closest confidant was plotting the execution of of his beloved wife. Sitting right there, having a meal together, drinking together. And he had been betrayed by his closest confidant. Notice how Esther describes Haman, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Specifically, not just an enemy to Ahasuerus, but an enemy to her and the Jews. He's referred to that uh, five times in this letter or this book, I should say. Um, But now he's become the enemy of the king himself. And notice what it says here. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. I guess so. And as we're Getting used to here, verse 7, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine. It always seems like he's doing stuff when he's drunk. He went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. So here's Ahasuerus, he's, he's enraged, and he storms out of the palace into the garden, and again, we know this guy had a short fuse. We, we learned that in the very first chapter. Verse 12, when Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. So here he was in the garden pacing back and forth, trying to settle down and figure out what he was going to do. And I'm sure he was mad at himself for misjudging Haman's character 
allowing himself to be duped into accepting a bribe and approving his terrible scheme to have his own wife killed, not to mention the fact the man who saved his life, Mordecai, and again, I think this is, in all, this is the providence of God. We need to see this, that, that in the providence of God, honoring Mordecai the Jew was fresh on his mind. This is like five years later, remember? But he couldn't sleep that night, had insomnia, right? And so he had one of the eunuchs come and read from the records, and he realized, oh, I never honored Mordecai. I need to do that. And that's just what happened on the previous, uh, you know, that, that morning, and so this was in the province of God, fresh on the king's mind. Again, what do we say? Pro, uh, uh, the, the, the verse that talks about God controlling the heart of the king like a water course. And I'm sure he's thinking out there in the, or imagine he's thinking out in the garden that if, that if his life had been saved by a Jew, why should the Jews be exterminated? Mordecai didn't fit the sinister claim that Haman had made about the Jews, that they were all about themselves and they had no interest in Persia or the king of Persia. In fact, he rescued the king of Persia. And so none of this made sense to Ahasuerus. Probably the biggest dilemma that he had to deal with was figuring out how to punish Haman for this decree and save his own reputation in the process, since he is the one who had, had approved it. So now he's, he's got to save face somehow. And again, at this point, Haman was petrified. Verse 6, he was terrified. He saw harm had been determined against him by the king. He knew the king well enough by now, to know that he was about to pass sentence from which there would be no escape. I mean, he, he had been near enough to the king to recognize and interpret his every mood and to anticipate his every move, and so he knew he was a dead man. And so his only hope was to plead for mercy from Esther. Maybe she would intercede on his behalf and the king would spare his life. So in mortal fear, Haman threw himself at the feet of Esther and begged her for his life. And again, here's another irony in this story, that this whole series of events began because Haman was offended that one Jewish man refused to bow before him. And now Haman himself was forced to bow before a Jewish woman. And as so often is the case, the arrogant bully becomes the whining coward. Notice verse 8. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? So again, in the providence of God, timing is everything, right? So he walks back in. At the very moment when Haman was groveling at Esther's feet, and it looked to the king like Haman was assaulting his wife. And according to the Persian tradition, no one but the king and the eunuchs were allowed within seven feet of the queen. So, so talk about social distancing, right? The queen could have never got COVID. Right? Nobody was around her, right? But the point is, you couldn't get within seven feet of the queen unless you were the king or one of the eunuchs. And so this turned out to be very convenient for Ahasuerus because it gave him the excuse he was looking for to eliminate Haman without implicating himself for this decree to kill the Jews. And so as the furious words of the king echoed through the palace, Haman's head was covered in preparation for execution. Notice the end of verse 8 there. As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, right? They put the hood over his head. He's done. Lights out for Haman. And so we come to Haman's reward. Verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said... 
Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So one of the king's eunuchs named Harbona, we met him in chapter 1, verse 10, informed Ahasuerus about the gallows that that Haman had built the night before to impale Mordecai. And again, hearing that Haman had intended to kill the man who he had just had him honor for saving his life was the, the final straw that caused Ahasuerus' anger to explode, and he ordered this evil villain to be impaled on his own 75-foot spike. By the way, I got some new intel on Sam Houston's statue. There's some historians in our church, and they want to make sure we got it right. That, that Sam Houston is actually 67 feet tall, but he stands on a 10-foot base. So that makes him 77 feet tall. So when you, th- when you drive by Sam Houston next time, think of the spike. That was about the same height, right, as the spike. In other words, it was meant to be a spectacle that you could see for miles around. Verse 10 So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. So again, here's the irony of ironies, right? That Haman was killed by the very device he had constructed to kill Mordecai, and he ended up being the citywide spectacle that he had hoped Mordecai would be. In other words, he got hit with his own boomerang. Or you could just say, that's just sweet providence. (laughs) That's just sweet providence right there. Proverbs 11, verse 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. As I was thinking about that verse, I thought, while this is the, the irony of ironies in the book of Esther, really the irony of ironies in the Bible is the cross. Rather than the wicked taking the place of the righteous, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, took the place of the wicked. That's the irony of ironies. The last guy who should ever died, who should ever been killed for sin, right, was the one killed for sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the sinless Son of God died in the place of wicked sinners like you and like me. And I think the term boomerang effect can also apply to the cross in that it was a situation in which something had the opposite effect from the one that was intended or expected. And what I mean by that is just as Haman plotted against the Jews in order to destroy them, so Satan plotted against Christ in order to destroy him. And just as Haman was defeated on the very spike that he had built for Mordecai, so Satan was defeated by the very cross he had devised to destroy Christ. That's what Paul meant when he said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, it was through the cross that Christ canceled the written code that was against us and that stood opposed to us and disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over them. So while Satan thought he would make a public spectacle out of Christ on the cross, hanging on the cross, Christ made a public spectacle out of him. Furthermore, there are some Bible scholars who think that Haman foreshadows the man of sin, or what we know as the Antichrist, who will appear on the scene someday and ruthlessly, ruthlessly seek to annihilate the Jews. You can read about 
him in, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapter 13. And just as Haman hated the Jews and, and wanted to destroy them, so the Antichrist will usher in a wave of worldwide anti-Semitism. Again, you can read about this in Revelation chapter 13. And if you know your end times theology, at first he will pretend to be friendly to Israel, the Antichrist, and will even make a covenant to protect them. But then he'll break that covenant and and oppose the very people he agreed to help and seek to destroy them. And just like Haman was ultimately defeated and judged, so the Antichrist will be defeated and judged by Christ when he returns. Amen? And he'll be sent to the lake of fire along with Satan, Revelation chapter 19. So the book of Esther is a, is a foretaste of the final deliverance of God's people in the end times. And so this book should give us hope for the future. But it also should provide us hope for the here and now. Because some of us perhaps are presently in the same predicament as the Jews. Because even though divine justice had been meted out, the enemy of the Jews was dead, they still weren't out of the woods yet. Because the king's edict was still in effect and it couldn't be changed. So it was like a ticking time bomb, right? So, so, the, so the enemy, the, the villain is dead, but then now the scene cuts to the, to the bomb. And, and you see the timer ticking down. And, and this is like the, the climax of the story, right, of the movie. The bad guy's dead, but we still got to deal with this bomb to save the world. And so they've got to figure out how to defuse this decree, if you will, before it explodes. And it was now the third month, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, we'll see that, and there were nine months to go before the hunting season opened up for the Jews, opened up on the Jews. This is, again, I read the verse, chapter 3, verse 13. So, even though ding dong, the witch is dead, right? The little munchkins are all jumping, Jewish munchkins are jumping around, right? Uh, Saying ding dong, the, the wicked witch is dead, Haman's dead. In a sense, the Jews' hut was still on fire. They still had to put this thing out. And so some of you are in a similar situation, right? You're, you're feeling like your hut's on fire right now. You got the hope for the future. You know your future is secure in Christ, but that's great. But right now, my hut's on fire. <laughs> what am I going to do about that? And what I mean is you're, you're facing something that has got you down. It's got you anxious. It's maybe even overwhelmed you with fear uh, and despair, Perhaps it's even made you mad at God. Like, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Seems like you're not in this at all. Which, by the way, I think is a natural way to feel when bad things happen to us. But based on what we're learning from this story, we shouldn't lose heart. Why? Because we know that God is at work in our lives. Even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our suffering and our frustration and our stress and disappointment and our loss, we know that God works, what? All things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So if you are sitting there this morning watching your hut burn, Remember that that it it just might be a providential smoke signal that will summon the grace of God in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can trust you because you have proven yourself 
to your people since time began. Since you've had a people. Since you created us. You've been proving yourself faithful time and time again. And even when we, your people find themselves in the worst predicaments imaginable, you are right there with them. Even though they might not see you, hear you, feel you, you are right there. All the time. You've always been there. You always will be there. You are the ancient of days. And so I pray that you would grant us faith as your people today who at various times we go through different trials. We find ourselves in predicaments, some of them extremely painful, extremely confusing. And Lord, that you would grant us the faith to believe that you are up to something good. Even when things look or go incredibly bad. Thank you for this example that we have, this story where you put on display your sweet providence time and time again. I pray you'd give us, uh, make us more aware. Give, her, give us uh, a keener ability to see your providence in the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of our everyday lives and that we would be able to give you glory for that when we see it, and thank you and praise you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.